We will be uh, commemorating, celebrating, and maybe even a few of us will entertain colorful fire and blow a few things up to mark that historic date on which the 13 American colonies declared their independence from the crown. I encouraged the staff this last week on their uh, 4th of July holiday uh, that they might consider ways that they show their own revolt to the crown. You know, don't read an autobiography by a royal, for instance. Uh, don't wear a red coat. Don't speak English all day. Whatever your, whatever your form of rebellion is. But you'll recall that when in the course of, of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them. Probably the longest sentence that says, I quit, <laughs> right? We hold these truths to be self-evident, right? That all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There's our declaration, how it starts, how it rolls off. Our independence declared, and admittedly, it has and continues to still be a process to forge a nation that holds these commitments as something more than aspirational for all people. Yet the Declaration's rhetoric still plays well today. And so I thought we'd lead off with this as we get into this text, looking here at Romans 6, because there's a value that's expressed in the Declaration. It's an American value, a Western value. It's an underlying value that expresses and resonates with us even here today, this, this many centuries later. And it can be summed up with a single word, freedom. How many times do we hear that word expressed and shared and it suddenly becomes the end of a statement, end of a sentence, end of a conversation? We just say freedom and we all go, mm. yeah, right there, you know it, you know it. So core value in the American psyche that its mere mention can elevate a speech to quotable status. I think of the 1995 movie Braveheart, which has literally become quotable with William Wallace, played by Mel Gibson. And you'll remember, if you've seen that movie, that he rouses his troops with these words, they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom, right? And you get all excited there at the movie theater, like take another bite of popcorn, sip on your drink, and run out of there with a blue face and a kilt and assert your freedom. No great prose here, just deeply held commitment that resonates with the Western freedom-loving audience. How does Janis Joplin put it? I was asked this last uh, weekend, actually. Someone said, what secular song reference are you gonna have in your sermon on Sunday? <laughs> Sorry, I've become that predictable. I won't tell you who it is, but it's an elder. We'll narrow it down. But how does Janis Joplin uh, put it in her song, Me and My Bobby McGee? Second line of the chorus, nothing don't mean nothing, hon, if it ain't free. Right? And these type of sentiments resonate with us. So when we come to Romans 6, particularly this latter part of the chapter, and we read this with freedom-loving eyes. All this talk of being a slave to this or that can and very well strike us as being distant and far from the things that we value, that we hold as important, or as the way the world ought to be. At the very worst, it's off-putting and perhaps even a bit offensive to us in our Western years. But Paul, that early Christian writer and apostle of the Gentiles, here draws on a backstory from his own cultural experience. And he draws on one that would immediately resonate with those who are familiar with the Jewish scriptures. It's the story of an ancient people who were rescued from Egypt. 
who passed through the waters during that rescue on dry land. And in Exodus 19, we hear that they are then called to be a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. If that all sounds familiar, it's because you've spent years watching Charlton Heston during Easter on TV with the Ten Commandments. Or you've read the Bible and you're familiar with the Exodus story. And at the outset of Romans chapter 6, sure enough, we see that backstory of a rescue people who have passed through the waters of baptism and who are now in our reading at this point in chapter 6 are introduced to the new reality in which they find themselves. The new reality that anyone who is now in Christ now finds themselves. What it means to be a people of God, to be that holy nation. And strangely enough, it is a passing from one enslavement to another. We go from being slaves in one place to slaves in another, another place. And again, it strikes us as odd in our Western ears. The original slavery is a slave to sin. We see that named in verse 17. And this is no way and no place that you want to be. It's described as a life devoted to sin and sin's demands. Bodies contorted to be instruments to sin. We see that in verses 12 and 13. It's an offering of oneself to sin, which continues on and on and on. According to verse 19. It's a devolution, a destruction, and death in verses 16, 21, and 23. There's a lot of pictures of how this might take shape, but one of the pictures that came to my mind immediately when I was uh, reading through this text was C.S. Lewis's reference in Prince Caspian. You remember in the Narnia Tales, there's that talk about that bear that attacks, and they're wondering how that's even possible. And they talk about how the animals in some cases have gone enemy and have lost their powers of speech. Whereas some animals can speak, these ones have gone wild. There's a wilding effect that happens there. Sin does that to us. There's a wilding effect that happens to our persona and who we are. We're free in this regards when we talk about enslavement and sin. We're actually free in one sense. The text says we're free in regards to righteousness. In verse 20. Completely dominated by sin. What follows are shameful acts. Regrettable behaviors and deeds. See that in verse 21. An enslavement that is most assuredly to be freed from. It's not something to be pursued, but to be something to be rescued from. Not to remain in, nor to return to. Harking back to that image of those who left Egypt, who were wanting to go back to Egypt. It says, don't, don't be in that place. There's a story that's told. Uh, it's actually a reference to Spurgeon. And it's said that he told this story often, but he talks about this enslavement to sin and the power of that sin he uses the reference to an evil king. And this king in his tyranny calls a person before his throne and says to him, what's your, what's your vocation? And the man says, I'm a blacksmith. He says, oh good, go make me a chain. And so the blacksmith leads and makes a chain. He comes back with his finely put together chain, all the links looking beautifully crafted. And the king says, make it longer. And so he goes away and he makes it longer returns to the king and the king says, not long enough. And this happens over and over and over again, this chain becoming longer and longer and more burdensome. Finally, the blacksmith comes back to the king with just an impossibly long chain. And the king says to him, guards, bind him with the chain and throw him in the dungeon. That's the enslavement of sin. And that's the power that that has on our lives as people. This former way of life is captured, I think, succinctly by Michael Bird, who writes this in his commentary. He calls it wicked, fruitless, 
shameful, and lethal. But perhaps the language of AA might suffice here. We are powerless and our lives have become unmanageable. That's the type of language we can apply to the life of enslavement here. Our situation is so messed up that we need a power greater than ourselves to restore us to sanity, to liberate us from this body of death. And that's where the good news comes in. That's where the gospel comes to us, the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Those who are enslaved to sin, that's who we were under the old master. But Paul writes here in Romans, that's not who you are now. No, those marked by the belief and sealed in the waters of baptism, these now enjoy a taste of the age to come and the promise of all its coming benefits. We become covenant participants, kingdom heirs, not as autonomous free agents, but rather as those who are now serving a new master. And that's where Paul uses this language, that we are enslaved to righteousness. That's in verse 18. That we're enslaved to God. That's verse 22. And that still might sound a bit strange for 21st century Western ears, but consider what this new life means in contrast to that former bondage. We are no longer to allow sin to reign over us. We see that in verse 12, because it can't. It can't. Verse 14 makes that clear. As we are now under grace. Of course, this is not the same as giving license to any and all behavior. Paul's going to make that point throughout Romans. But instead to live in accordance with the demands of the new master. Or as Augustine says, love God and do whatever you please. Love God and do whatever you please. And we begin to realize that it cordons things off a bit. It gives a different type of reference point for us. No longer relegated to sin production. We can use our powers for good. I used to tell this really uh, smart kid in the youth group. Uh, I mean, really smart. I mean, I felt dumb talking to him sometimes. He was very, very intelligent and stuff. And I used to tell him, use your powers for good. Use your powers for good. It's a chance for us to reflect glimpses of the life of the age to come. We can look the part because as Douglas Moo observes, the Christian is not just called to do right in a vacuum, but to do right out of a new and powerful relationship that has already been established. We also see that the path forward does not lead to death, but rather the life of the age to come. Realized in part here and now, that sanctification, which offers glimpses of what that future life will look like. And we see the results of that in verse 22. Romans 1.16, the start of that book, asserts that the gospel is God's saving power for everyone who believes. I shared last week in Chelan to the, to the group that was gathered there, there were that many happy campers that descended on that uh, lake. I shared the story of, of being in a marching band in high school in which we had a visualization exercise that our former band leader was leading us through. Apparently we weren't doing as well as he expected. And so he had us visualize. He said, if you can picture all the moves you're going to do, and then when you go out there, you can march the perfect show. And I shared there that in marching the perfect show, apparently one of the signs of that is you don't remember it after you finish marching it. And so imagine a bunch of young people who've been visualizing the perfect show who come off the field and begin yelling, I can't remember what I just did, and tears going down their faces. And then we got second. So <laughs> it wasn't the perfect show after all. But that thinking of, of visualizing something so that we can achieve it. Well, the gospel is no visualization exercise, 
but rather God's saving power because the righteousness we enjoy has already been achieved in Jesus Christ our Lord. We don't have to picture something that isn't, but rather we need to look to what already is. As they say, I was blind, but now I see. The given vision that we have is one that it already is. And so we respond to it with trust and obedience in the one who gives. Unlike wages, as we see in chapter 6, verse 23, which are earned or deserved, it's what you have coming, right? The wages of sin is death, that's what you have coming. But rather we see here grace, a free gift. It's what you receive because of what God has given freely. And what we have coming is made possible by God who freely gives to you and to me this morning. That's a different kind of freedom. And it's certainly a different kind of enslavement. That we're free to be a different kind of people. And we're free not to go it alone in this life. Which leaves us this morning with a question. One that is hinted to by the great American theologian, Bob Dylan. I couldn't leave it with just one reference. I had to have two. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord. But you're going to have to serve somebody. There's shades of Paul in that. There's shades of Romans 6 there. As in this life, we are going to have to serve somebody. We're either going to serve as ones who've been enslaved to sin or enslaved to God. Or for Dylan, you would say the devil or it may be the Lord. But don't get too carried away thinking that it's as easy as switching sides. It's not a game of Red Rover, send so-and-so right over. It's not that. Our histories remind us that self-serve is where we return most often, perhaps even as a default. But remember that free gift. God finds you and finds me, seeks us out. So much so that the late Mike Iaconelli, who led at the time was the largest publishing house for youth ministry products, he began to shift his focus to the larger church in some of his writing uh, close to his death. He writes what is probably one of the more memorable, if not distinct, descriptions of spiritual conversion. This moving from one enslavement to the next in his book, Messy Spirituality. I mean, you could just stop there with the title of the book and say, okay, where's this thing going? He calls it a life ruined by Jesus who loves us right into his arms. A life ruined by Jesus who loves us right into his arms. And in case you thought that you're exempt from the group that Iaconelli had in mind, if you think, oh, I don't have my stuff together enough to make the cut, hear what Iaconelli understood this fellowship would include. He says, the church is the place where the incompetent, the unfinished, and even the unhealthy are welcome. Let me say that again. The incompetent, the unfinished, and even the unhealthy are welcome. I'm glad that's the description of the church because then I feel like I belong here. <coughs> you can guess which three. I'll say it's all three of those areas. Jack Nelly will say, I believe Jesus agrees. And I think Paul agrees as well here in Romans 6. Welcoming all of us, no matter where we're at, where we find ourselves this morning. That there's a place here for you. When I say here, I don't mean just out on this grass under these tents. But I mean part of a community that's loved by Jesus. A community in which God's people are called to be that holy nation made possible because of Christ. And I think you're not I think you're here not by accident, but rather you've been placed here so that you can enjoy those many 
many benefits that come to being a person who is in covenant with the loving and living God. You're loved and freed. You're also freed to love. May that be where we live our lives each and every day, today and forever. Amen. Friends, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love today. And as we ponder this text, we pray that your spirit would continue to guide us through what Romans 6 is saying uh, to us in each and every day, each and every encounter, but even more so what the gospel calls us to. So this morning, as we, as we prepare our hearts and our lives to ask the question, what might you do with us, in us, and through us? We offer ourselves to you as, as those who trust you. We love you. Lord, help us as the incompetent, the unfinished, and the unhealthy be those who are restored to full health because we stand in the presence of God. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.